Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our October 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Up to 58% of veterans may commit domestic violence. To address this problem, experts in domestic violence and veterans affairs met at the Aspen Institute in Colorado to identify best practices in preventing domestic violence in the families of veterans. The experts first agreed that better screening is necessary. They also agreed that local non-military health care providers need to learn about military culture and the resources for veterans that are available in their region. The group then discussed a number of regional and national programs that have been successful in reducing domestic violence in families of veterans. Read this commentary to find out about strategies and resources for addressing domestic violence in this population. In addition to genetic factors, bipolar disorder is quite likely also influenced by environmental factors. A group of researchers from France and Norway looked at associations between clinical presentations and a history of childhood neglect and abuse. They found that patients with childhood trauma, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and emotional neglect were younger when they first became ill, had more suicide attempts, and had more rapid cycling. They also reported more depressive episodes. Patients reporting emotional abuse and sexual abuse had the lowest age at bipolar onset and had more suicide attempts. Also, patients reporting high levels of sexual abuse had more rapid cycling than all other patients. Females reported higher overall trauma frequency than males and greater associations with expressions of illness. The authors point to the importance of gathering data on emotional abuse, as well as the more frequently investigated sexual abuse when exploring clinical characteristics of bipolar disorder. As part of this month's special section on women's mental health, Dr. Marlene Freeman and her colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital highlight the need for clinical trials to take into account the female reproductive life cycle. Her group's objective is to promote the systematic collection of data on reproductive and hormonal status that may impact outcomes and allow for secondary analyses. Towards this end, they have developed a questionnaire aimed at standardizing such data collection. It consists of five modules that encompass childbearing potential, use of hormonal therapies, and menopausal status, among others. The commentary includes links to the questionnaire and also discusses why now is a particularly opportune time to start including these data in clinical trials. Research indicates that as women enter their menopausal years, hormonal fluctuations can result in an increased risk of depression that is also more severe and resistant to treatment than that experienced by nonmenopausal women. 
It has been hypothesized that serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs, might be a more effective option than SSRIs in these patients. An eight-week placebo-controlled study was conducted to evaluate the efficacy of desvenlafaxine, dosed at 50 milligrams a day, in perimenopausal and postmenopausal women with major depressive disorder. The study, funded by Pfizer, showed significantly greater decrease in depression scores and greater increase in health-related quality of life with desvenlafaxine. Statistically significant improvements in pain symptoms and overall functioning were seen after two weeks. Safety and tolerability findings were similar to those in previous studies of desvenlafaxine. Gender differences have been found for several psychiatric disorders. However, the impact of gender has not been well studied in psychotic depression. The authors of this article conducted the largest known study in psychotic depression to investigate the impact of gender on sociodemographic and clinical characteristics. It is also the first to investigate the impact of gender and age on treatment response and treatment-associated change in body mass index. The study received support from the U.S. Public Health Service, the National Center for Research Resources, Eli Lilly, and Pfizer. Analyses were performed on data from adult subjects in a double-blind, randomized controlled trial of olanzapine plus sertraline versus olanzapine plus placebo for the acute treatment of psychotic depression. The analysis found evidence of both gender differences and similarities in sociodemographic and clinical characteristics in psychotic depression. A greater percentage of women than men were found to have all types of hallucinations and delusions with disorganization, which suggests that women experience psychotic depression differently than men. In addition, women had higher cholesterol measures than men. This finding should be taken into consideration when monitoring metabolic adverse effects of psychotropic medications. The authors conclude that larger studies are needed to confirm and extend the present analysis of gender differences in psychotic depression. Researchers should focus on hypothesized differences in treatment outcomes and adverse effect burden among men and women before, near, and after menopause. The link between trauma exposure and increased risk of depression is well established, but less is known about the effect of antecedent trauma on depression during the perinatal period. Key questions remain unanswered about the effects of different types of trauma multiple exposures, and whether there is a differential prediction from trauma to antenatal or postpartum depression. A longitudinal cohort study by Robertson Blackmore and colleagues followed 374 predominantly low-income, minority pregnant women who were assessed during pregnancy and the postpartum period. Traumatic events were assessed through the PTSD section of the SCID diagnostic interview. Rates of trauma were high. 39% reported at least one traumatic event, and a third of the women had experienced childhood sexual abuse 
or had been the victim of physical or sexual violence in adulthood. There was a clear dose-response effect of trauma on antenatal but not postpartum depression. Three types of trauma at least doubled the risk of antenatal depression. Childhood sexual abuse, the unexpected illness or death of someone close, and someone close being physically or sexually assaulted. However, none of the traumas predicted postpartum depression. There are several reasons why trauma exposure would predict depression during pregnancy, but not in the postpartum period. Altered stress reactivity as a result of trauma exposure may mediate susceptibility to the triggering of depression in pregnancy due to the vast biological changes that occur during this time. Also, the repeated and intimate physical examinations of routine obstetric care may reactivate trauma and induce depression in women with a history of childhood sexual abuse. The results suggest that all pregnant women should be screened for trauma and depression to identify women at risk and to aid in the early detection and treatment of antenatal depression. Recent randomized controlled trials have shown no benefit of long-acting injectable antipsychotics over oral antipsychotics in preventing schizophrenia relapse. However, patients enrolled in RCTs might have disproportionately better treatment adherence and lower illness severity. A meta-analysis was therefore conducted of 25 mirror image studies which compare periods of treatment with oral versus long-acting injectable antipsychotics in the same patients. The results indicated that long-acting injectables showed strong superiority over oral antipsychotics in preventing hospitalization and in decreasing the number of hospitalizations. The authors note that given the possible biases of mirror image studies, such as natural illness course and time effect, cautious interpretation of their findings is required. Cigarette smoking remains prevalent in the general population with serious health consequences, such as cancer and chronic lung disease. Effective treatments are available, including nicotine patch and gum, bupropion, and varinacline. Yet many smokers still fail to quit. A placebo-controlled trial funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse was conducted to determine whether treatment of ADHD with extended-release methylphenidate would help individuals quit smoking. Many cigarette smokers have ADHD, which often goes unrecognized and is associated with failure to quit smoking. The first analysis of this trial did not detect an effect of extended-release methylphenidate on smoking. The medication did improve symptoms of ADHD, but with a lot of variation. Some patients improved substantially, while others showed no improvement, according to the dsm 4 version of the ADHD rating scale. A real analysis has shown that extended-release methylphenidate did improve the likelihood of quitting smoking among patients who had more severe symptoms of ADHD to begin with and among patients whose ADHD symptoms were substantially improved by treatment. The take-home message is that smokers who want to quit smoking should be screened for ADHD. When ADHD is present, and particularly when it is more severe, 
clinicians should consider treating the ADHD with medication. Importantly, the dose and type of medication should be adjusted until a substantial improvement in ADHD symptoms is achieved, which in turn may improve the chances of successfully quitting smoking when ADHD treatment is done in conjunction with standard smoking treatments such as nicotine replacement. By influencing the glutamate system, N-methyl-D aspartate antagonists have a novel mechanism of action that makes them of particular interest for the treatment of major depressive disorder. The intravenous N-methyl-D aspartate antagonist ketamine has produced rapid, substantial improvement in depression symptoms in clinical trials, but its benefits have been more difficult to sustain long-term. The oral N-methyl-D aspartate antagonist mumantine, while having some different properties than ketamine, is already approved for use in Alzheimer's disease. The authors of this article sought to test mumantine's efficacy against major depressive disorder as an augmentation treatment to conventional antidepressants. The study was sponsored by Forest Research Institute. 31 patients who were partial responders or non-responders to their current antidepressant were randomized to added memantine or placebo for eight weeks. Both patient groups continued receiving the antidepressant therapy they had been taking for approximately a month or longer. Most participants completed the trial, and although flexible dosing was used, all participants taking memantine received the highest dose of 20 milligrams per day. At study's end, the authors found no statistically or clinically significant differences in depression rating scales, response, or remission. Although the sample size was small, effect sizes were also mostly in the minimal to small range, and they often slightly favored placebo. The authors conclude that their study, although limited in size, suggests a lack of efficacy for memantine as an augmentation treatment for major depressive disorder. As discussed in this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, if pills are swallowed with little or no water, or if the patient lies down right after swallowing the medication, the medication may be delayed in moving down the esophagus. This can result in pill esophagitis, which usually causes discomfort, but occasionally has more serious implications. Dr. Andrade looks at factors that contribute to pill esophagitis, medications that are associated with it, and ways to minimize it. Iron pills are used as a case in point because iron may be indicated in different contexts in psychiatric patients. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and more from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for The Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.